Hi everyone, I'm Graham Smith and welcome to this episode of the Abolish the Monarchy podcast brought to you by Republic. Republic campaigns for the abolition of the monarchy, of course, and this podcast series attempts to explore the various issues surrounding the monarchy and the democratic alternatives on offer. In each episode, I'll be speaking to a guest who has something interesting to say about the royals, the British constitution, or the principles behind the campaign for a republic. Today I'm talking to David McClure, an independent journalist and freelance writer, as well as television producer. David has worked for Reuters, BBC News and Thames Television and made current affairs programmes for Channel 4 and Sky News. A few years ago, David wrote Royal Legacy, a book which reveals a great deal about the wealth of the royals, where it comes from and how they protect it. David's new book, Royal Privilege, will be out later this year, which will take a fresh look at how the royals are funded. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Graham. Nice to be with you. And I think one thing that's worth saying here, uh, particularly for our audience, is that you're not coming at this from as a Republican. You're coming at it as an independent journalist um, who is clearly interested in where all this, uh, how all this works and where all this money has come from. I mean, what first got you interested in this? Well, like many things in life, it, it really came by mistake. You know, as you said, I'm, by background, I'm a political journalist, a current affairs TV producer. I was developing a, a program for Channel 4 about contested wills, disputed wills. One of them was the will of Princess Margaret. And then Channel 4 became much more interested in the will of Princess Margaret than other people. And I was asked to do some detailed research on it. And it became more and more research and cut a long story short. The commission, the program wasn't commissioned, but I was left with all this information. So I turned it into, into a book about, you know, the, the inherited wealth of the royal family and their will. So it all happened by mistake. Fair enough. And I mean, did, was it something that you had an interest in before? Had you ever sort of given it much thought? And, and when you did this research, was it... An eye opener? Was it more or less as you might have thought it would, would it turn out to be? Or I mean, what was your initial thoughts on on what well, you found? That's a good question. You know, I really came to this pretty blank. Really, I didn't have a particular interest in the royal family uh, because I didn't think it had that much political importance or financial importance. So I, I really came to it with very little baggage. You know, I hadn't read all the biographies of Diana and all of that stuff. So um, it, it was interesting, and I think the most Interesting thing is, is the lack of any writing on this subject on the royal finances. Before I brought my book out, I don't think there'd been a, a book specifically about the royal finances for 25 years, a very good one, actually, by Philip, uh, Philip Hall. Um, so that there was a gap in the market, and it did seem odd that no one was really delving into the wealth of the Windsors. And... I mean, let's get on to the wealth, because I think one of the things you pick up on early on in the book, and something which we've always sort of tried to unpick and, and point out, is this distinction between what is theirs and what is their private property, what is crown property, the crown estates. And you mentioned some of these sort of wealth reports, like the Sunday Times Rich List and so on, that come up with all sorts of different figures as to how wealthy the, the Queen is. I mean, can you sort of maybe just explain a bit about what all of these different aspects are that are uh, either counted or not counted and um, uh, uh, the obvious one being the crown estates versus uh, and the palaces which are separately uh, owned or managed and then obviously their own private homes but I think there's quite a bit more to it than that isn't there? 
Yes, well, this is the biggest problem when looking at the royal finances, is that there is a blurring in the line between what is private and what is public. And even if you look at some of the Treasury documents from, you know, when they've looked into these things, they do acknowledge that the two things are mixed and that, you know, some of the private wealth of the Queen is used for public purposes and equally some of the public, you know, the public funding for the royal family does become private wealth. I suppose the best example of that is the waiver that the royal or the Queen has for paying inheritance tax. That means you know, their main wealth is derived probably from Balmoral and Sandringham. And, you know, since uh, Victoria's Day, they haven't paid inheritance tax on that. So that is a big way in which the private wealth of the royal family has been able to, to grow. But when it comes to, you know, uh, clarifying this line, I suppose the best example might be the, the Crown Estates. Now, is it public or private? Well, in theory, it looks private. It's, it's the Queen's property. It's surrendered to the state at the beginning of the year, at the beginning of the reign. But in practice, and it's acknowledged by the Treasury, in practice, it is public property. And if the Queen, you know, this has been going on since the 18th century, there's a surrender. So some people think because it's the Crown, it's not really public property, but effectively it is. And I suppose one of the most interesting aspects to that is the, the new funding system that was introduced in 2012, whereby the royal family would be funded by a percentage of the profits of the Crown Estates. Well, and because people think, some people think the Crown Estates are owned by the Queen, it appears almost painless. You know, we're not paying for it, you know? It's the Crown's thing, and they're just getting 25%. But because the Crown Estates are effectively public property, and that's acknowledged by the Treasury, then, you know, we, we are funding the royal family from the tax player. So it's quite complicated, but on many aspects, like the Crown Estates, there is a blurring of the line between what is private and what's public. And we'll probably come back on some of that, um, particularly the, the motivations on that. But I, I, going on to the Queen's personal wealth, this is another area which... Um, I suppose a lot of it is speculation. I think you sort of touched on this, but you do describe it as an extensive portfolio of land, artworks, and financial investments. I mean, how much do we actually know? How much is sort of guesswork, or which has been worked out by uh, people like yourself, sort of just trying to join the dots? Well, you know, it it is a very it is an area where the information is incomplete, to put it mildly. I suppose the most interesting thing is recently we've had the Sunday Times bringing out their rich list, which they put the Queen's wealth at. 350 million pounds. Now, they don't make it clear how they get to that figure, but some aspects of it are um, quantifiable. The easiest, I suppose, are Balmoral and Sandringham, her two private estates, and you can roughly put a value on them. You know, they, I think they were valued formally in 2001. So you could roughly say that those two estates on the open market could bring in something of the order of 100 million pounds, right? So that's definite. You could add in, there's been valuations of a stamp collection. One valuation in 2001 put it in at about 100 million. So you get up to 200 million. Um, beyond that, you know certain categories of wealth. You know that the Queen has a private collection of art. You know she has jewelry. You know she has a collection of old cars. So it's very hard to say how much that is, but, you know, it will be in tens of millions of pounds. So 
roughly you could get up to a figure of over 250 million, maybe going up to 400 million. It is something in that ballpark area. Sometimes we talk about, you know, Republic or, or I'm on a debate or something, and, and I talk about some of these issues, particularly around the Queen's own personal wealth and her taxes. And people sort of, I don't know whether they're genuinely shocked or, or feigning outraged that somehow I, it's impertinent to ask these questions. But I mean, do, as a journalist, I mean, would you say that there's a clear sort of public interest here in unpicking not just the confusion, but also knowing more about their, their personal wealth? I mean, the Queen is head of state and she mm. has... Uh, there's potential for conflict of interest and so on. Um, I mean, is there a public interest in, in knowing more about this? Should is there a case to be made saying that you know we ought to uh, there, there should be more transparency, but also much more clarity between what is private and what is public? Well, that's a very good question. On one one level, it could be argued this is a private matter. The Queen's private wealth is her. Pri you know, everyone is is has right over privacy and everyone shouldn't disclose the amount of tax they pay, and you know, that applies to everyone. I understand that argument. The problem is that the Queen and other sovereigns in the past have received enormous tax privileges that no other member of the family, no other citizen enjoys. And the biggest of that is, which we were talking about earlier, the exemption from paying um, um, death duties, inheritance tax which is enormous beneficial advantage for the finances of the royal family. So because the royal family is funded, enjoys those privileges, it is totally legitimate for your organization or me or any independent researcher to ask questions about that because they have privileges that no one else has and those privileges uh, increase the private wealth of the royal family. And, you know, and even if you look at some treasury documents, going back to 1971, you have chancellors of the exchequer saying it is legitimate to ask questions about the total private wealth of the Queen due to the fact that they have these privileges, these tax privileges. And the issue of inheritance tax, of course, brings us on to the whole area of the sealing of their wills because, you know, they're not paying the tax. Um, but we don't know where that where the wealth is going, and if there is a lot of um, fuzziness around what's public and private, we don't know what's being handed down as private inheritance and so on. So, I mean, this has always struck me as quite extraordinary that uh, the wills are sealed. Now, I understand from your book, which I didn't realise, that there is actually a statute covering the wills. Uh, I don't know whether this is just the monarch uh, going back to 1862, but it's more of a, a simple sort of convention since about 100 years ago in terms of the other royals. Can you sort of explain how that all came about and what, why it all came about? Yeah, it's important to make a distinction between the situation of the sovereign and the situation of other members of the royal family. As you said, there is a statute, I think it's from 1862, the Crown Estate, Private Estates Act or something like that, which does... Um, allow the sovereign's will and the size of their estate to be to be sealed, not to be made public. And it should be it should be said as there's a general principle of law, everyone's will is made public. You can go to the the registry office and see it. And the reason for that is to stop fraud, to see the money is going to the to the right place. So that's the principle. Now the Queen does enjoy a special legal immunity from that, but what has happened is there is also 
other members of the royal family don't have their wills opened. And everyone presumed there was also a legal statute behind that. It was, you know, it was done by law. But what I discovered and other people discovered before me is that, that that was just done by convention. It started in about 1911 when the brother, of, it's a long story, but to keep it short, the brother of Queen, Queen Mary's brother, Prince Francis, uh, got into trouble and he gave away some jewelry and the queen didn't want to make it public. So she went to the courts and got his will sealed. And that set, effectively set a precedent. And since then, all wills of, of royals other than, the, uh, other than the sovereign have been sealed but it didn't have any legal basis to it. And we didn't know that until um, uh, Princess Margaret died and there was a case by someone who claimed to be the, her love child. Anyway, it doesn't matter whether he was or not, but he had a right to see, look at her will. And then it was discovered that there really was no legal basis for the sealing of the wills. It was just done by precedent, by something, by a... Um, a legal mechanism that just um, allows that to continue. So there is a gap in the law, and in many ways they should introduce new legislation to clarify totally uh, whether wills of you know, junior members of the royal family should be sealed. And to my mind, it, it seems outrageous that they have this, this, this immunity. And this is, you know, for someone like yourself who's trying to work out where all this wealth comes from and where it goes i mean the wills are obviously going to be quite important and there was am i right in saying if i understood what you were uh saying in your book that there was a helena victoria who whose will wasn't sealed for reasons i i don't know whether that is clear what the reasons were and that sort of helped sort of unlock some of that information well yes that's an interesting because everyone presumed and royal family included that all royal wills were sealed right but actually, it wasn't the case. And there was this case of, um, as you referred to, Queen Victoria's granddaughter, Helena uh, Victoria, whose will wasn't sealed. And then I also discovered there was a the will of um, the former Duchess of Gloucester, the Queen's cousin. She, she decided she didn't want to have a will sealed. And there were, quite a, there were one or two other wills not sealed. And even most famously, Princess Diana, who technically wasn't a member of the royal family or had lost her title when she died, her will was made open. Now, the effect of all of this is really it blows a, a hole into the argument that all royal wills should be sealed. You know, if, if Queen Victoria's granddaughter could have an open will, if the Duchess of Gloucester could have an open will, if Diana could have an open will, well, why not everyone else? So, you know, what are they hiding? Why do they have to have these special privileges? And I think that's the, the obvious question is, you know, that there's usually a reason for people wanting things to be kept secret. And, uh, and what, what are they hiding is the, is the obvious question. I mean, yeah, the, you touched on this case of Prince Francis. And I mean, my understanding of that is that he essentially gifted jewellery to someone uh, that didn't belong to him. And that's what they wanted to sort of deal with in on the quiet, as it were. Is that roughly the... Well, the I, I think it did belonged to him, but the, they didn't want it to go out of the royal family, and they wanted it back. So there was some, it was very, you know, the royal family regarded that as, as important jewellery that they'd like in the, in the official collection. So they had to do a backstage deal in order to, the woman he gifted the, the jewellery to 
Um, you know, they had to effectively pay her off to get the jewelry back, but they didn't want to make it a scandal. They wanted to keep it secret. So you ask the question, why are they sealing wills? And it's for reasons of secrecy. Um, and, you know, I suppose the, the main reason is that the, the royal family do not want to appear as rich as they actually are, you know? And if you had the probate, the total value of the wills made public all the time, it would be embarrassing. Like, for instance, the classic example of that is the death of the Queen Mother. And when was that? 2002, 2003. Her will was sealed, and also the total value of her wealth was was not made public. As what happened, you know, when you have an unsealed will, you have, you know, the probate value, the total size of the estate made public. Well, you know, it would have been quite embarrassing if the total wealth of the, the Queen Mother had been made public, because some people put it as high as 50, 60 million pounds. And on that particular occasion, I mean, I, again, I, my understanding was that the there is a rule that's been around for a long time where a monarch inheriting from a monarch doesn't pay inheritance tax. But um, but when uh, in the 1990s there was this pressure to start paying income tax, part of the arrangement was that they would allow the Queen not to pay inheritance tax on the wealth she inherited from her mother, who isn't a monarch. I mean, is that or was that already the the rule? I mean, why? Because this is one of the problems: is that you don't see the the will, you don't see how much wealth there is, mm. and you also don't see that all of this is going to the the queen or whoever, and and inheritance tax isn't being paid on it. I mean, what's the rule around that? Is it? It was it. What was that deal that John Major did? Well, I'll just try and untangle it. So you have from about eighteen sixty. Uh, a law saying the queen, the sovereign, doesn't have to pay inheritance tax, right? And then this was all clarified in 1993 when they said, when John Major brought out a, a memorandum which said, oh, the queen doesn't have to pay inheritance tax and nor does the, the spouse of the sovereign or the spouse of the former sovereign, right? Now that seemed, that, so that sort of extended it or clarified. I think that had been the case before but it had never been totally clarified in a, in a written document. And the effect of that meant that the, the Queen's mother, the Queen, the Queen Mother, her estate, like the estate of other sovereigns, was exempted from tax. Now, that seemed a very generous thing to do, because you know, it is thought that the Queen Mother had an estate of, of the order of 50 million pounds, and if she had paid inheritance tax on that, the, the public would have got maybe £20 million in revenue. So maybe they just brought in that extra bit to apply to the Queen Mother, to the spouses of, of sovereigns, because you had the unusual situation of a long-living ex-spouse, right? And some of the jewellery often goes, the royal jewellery often goes down the female line so they were scared of losing all that jewellery and other things. So they extended that to, to the Queen Mother. But I think in most normal circumstances, um, it shouldn't have been extended to the, to, 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 to the spouse as well. And I think if they ever re-looked re at the legislation or re-looked at the guidelines, they really should exclude um, you know, spouses from the list. Uh, yeah, I mean, I... I... 
I'd be the first one to say that all of them should pay inheritance tax like the rest of us do. And I, I, I mean, there is an argument. I, I think it's rather questionable. But I think John Major, I think you quoted John Major's position at the time about why they felt that they shouldn't be paying inheritance tax. And I was a bit surprised to learn that he was reluctant to impose income tax on them at the time, but uh, was persuaded to do so. So what what well, is that it, argument? Well, I, I could spell it out. His, his argument that he, he said in, in Parliament when he introduced the, the, the memorandum was that um, there, if, if the Queen, if the sovereign didn't get an exemption from um, inheritance tax, they could lose a large part of their estate. The, the example he used is you have two deaths in succession. If you have a double whammy, so you pay 40% tax on one estate, then you have a new sovereign and you pay another 40%, you could have the wealth totally decimated. And it actually happened to the, the, the Duke of Gloucester. And so in a situation like that, if you have forced, you know, you had a big inheritance tax bill to pay, you would have to f sell off to pay that tax bill you'd probably have to sell off some of the assets, which probably would mean you'd have to sell off Balmoral or Sandringham. Mm. And those estates are regarded as, although they're private property, they're part of national heritage, and it wouldn't look good if, I know, Balmoral was sold off to, you know, someone like Donald Trump to turn into a, into a you know, sporting complex. So that was the worry <laughs> that, for the, at least for the sovereign, if they paid inheritance tax, they might have to sell off some of the assets. But I still do think it's a rather uh, generous act. And maybe you, you could limit it and say, well, you know, the sovereign should be allowed one private property, Balmoral or Sandringham, but not both. Hmm. So, you know, but the, the, the argument was the risk of a double whammy of, of two deaths and paying two lots of inheritance, inheritance tax and having to sell off some of the family silver, which might be regarded as national heritage property. Which I suppose, I mean, this brings up all sort of ties a lot of this together, is that maybe they need to be a lot clearer if it is national heritage, then perhaps it ought to belong to the nation and therefore not fall into the the tax. Uh, well, that, that's a, that, if I can interrupt, that's a very good point, because the Queen Mother benefited from this exemption. And one of the things she benefited was her art collection, and the biggest thing in our art collection was a, a painting by Monet worth five million pounds, which by no stretch of the imagination, French artists originally bought in France, could be regarded as part of our natural national heritage. Indeed. And I suppose, I mean, the other point obviously is, for me, is that, you know, about the double whammy, and as you pointed out, other people get hit by this double whammy and other people have to pay inheritance tax regardless of what that impact might be so um yeah i think they're and, and uh, just to interrupt again sorry is that actually happened to the duke of gloucester they had two deaths uh the, the heir to the gloucester position died and then duke of gloucester died and what they did is they sold a lot of their property at a, at a sale at christie's you know they did sell some of the family silver so you know this is what happens on this issue of selling of gifts and so on. I mean, there was a case, um, and this was Princess Margaret's estate, wasn't it, in 2006, where there was a uh, an auction which was somewhat controversial and raised a few eyebrows. Um, was that... Were there questions there about whether property belonged to Princess Margaret, or was it questions as to whether it belonged to... It was private property of someone else, or whether it, some of it might have been public property? I mean, what, what was the controversy around that? 
Yes, it's quite a complicated situation. You know, the bulk of of, uh, of the of the property that was put on at auction at Christie's was was private property. But within it, they did find elements that wasn't private property. For instance, there was a number of gifts that were given to Princess Margaret at the time of a wedding, like from I don't know, the New Zealand government, from some uh, Caribbean states, which were wedding presents. And it was found that they were being sold by her heirs, and that was going to go into their own private wealth. And, the, you know, and when that came into the public domain, they had to um, re remove those items or pay compensation for the amount of money they got from that. And also there are bits and pieces like a, a railing from, I don't know, Royal Ascot and, and one other thing that really was by no stretches of imagination, private property. So, you know, the two things do get mixed. I wouldn't say the whole of the estate was, you know, public, but there were bits and pieces in the estate that turned out to be private, or turned out to be more public, and they had to be, you know, taken, the money gained from it had to be returned to the public purse. So, you know, it does show the way the two lots of private and public property do get merged. So... I mean, let's, let's sort of bring it up to date a bit. So we've had um, a century of all the wills being hidden and, and uh, not paying inheritance tax, which I guess goes back further. Um, and we've started over the last 20 years to see a little bit more reporting from the from the royals. But they started to say that, you know, talk about running out of uh, their reserves and so on. Um, about, was it 10... 12 years ago, and then the Cameron government decided to completely overhaul the whole um, funding mechanism, which strikes me also as being resulting in a fairly generous settlement. I mean, what was so originally it was crowd, it was the civil list, and that was scrapped in uh, 2011, the new system coming in in 2012, which was the sovereign grant. Can you sort of explain the difference between those two? And um, you did sort of touch on the fact that. There's this idea that it comes from the Crown Estate, but in fact, the Crown Estate is tax, tax uh, or public property. You use the phrase, you thought it was a generous settlement. Um, David Cameron, who brought it in, described it as a generous settlement in his own memoir. Um, yes, um, there are good bits to the new settlement and bad bits to the new settlement. You know, uh, when it was brought in in, uh, I think, 2012, the good bits was that it streamlined it. It was very complicated. They got money from three different government departments. And they weren't, you know, if one money was in one part of their budget, they couldn't use it for another part. For instance, if they didn't spend enough money on travel, they couldn't use the surplus to do up the palaces. So the new arrangement was much better insofar as it gave the royal, fa the, the royal household freedom to use, to, to do their own bu budgets, to plan ahead, to save money in that respect. It was also good insofar as it, it allowed the the public to have better scrutiny of their money. For the first time, the National Audit Office, the public watchdog, financial watchdog, was able to go through the books. And we do have quite a detailed report, you know, Sovereign Grant Report every year, which does give more details than before as to where the money is going. So that's the good side. On the negative side, it is, it is, the, way, it is the mechanism where they set the amount of money that goes to the royal family that is most contentious. Because what they did is they linked the amount of money that the 
that the sovereign or the royal household got every year to a percentage of the profits of the crown estates. Now, the crown estates is essentially a property agency. You know, it's, it goes up and down according to how well the property market is doing. And, you know, maybe not in the last year, but certainly in the last 10 or 20 years, it's been booming. But that doesn't seem to be the most sensible way to assess the needs of the royal household. You know, it should, the, the amount the royal family should be getting should in some way be directly linked to, uh, to their, their, their actual requirements. So by just setting a percentage of it, it's almost as though someone described it as a, a golden escalator. It just sort of goes up and up. Now, there is a rough floor, and if it got ridiculous, the trustees could set in and step in and, and stop it. But it, it, is, it is certainly a very generous way of funding the royal family. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it, it really is, is it's too generous, to put it bluntly. And I think that this golden escalator is, I believe, at the time, that part of the meaning of that was that it, it, it is one way. It can't go down again because there is this sort of ratchet clause which it can never go back down below the level that it was the previous year. So even if the Crown Estate property, uh, profits go down, which is unlikely given the, the, the scale of the operation, but if they did go down, then the grant would simply stay at the previous level and then would go up again when the profits go up again. Well, that, that, you're, you're dead right on that. It is clearly stated in the legislation that uh, it will always default to the, you know, if there are two years of one year, if the last year was at one level and the next year go, it goes down, you just default to the, to the higher level. So it effectively means uh, there's a flaw. You'll it, it, never go down. So that is again, that is an extremely generous uh, aspect of the legislation. And as you said, I mean, this, this is the point that I, uh, I've always made, which you've just made yourself um, in your previous comment, which is that you would normally expect a public body to have to explain what money it wants and why, and then it would ask for that budget to be granted for the next year, and they would have to then justify what it spent and use that. Uh, to make an argument for the following year's budget. And, and yet here, there's no consideration at all for what they actually need or uh, you know what the current year's operating costs are and so on. It's simply, here's a load of money, do what you want with it. Yes, you know, I'm sure they do you know, specify exactly what they need and they're not trying to you know, create new categories of spending. But it's just that the... It's sort of the open-ended aspect to it, and it is just a percentage of profits which tend to go up every year. Um, you know, there are good sides to it. As I said, that you know, the fact that they it is much better, it's more efficient if the royal family or the royal household does decide, you know, how they allocate money within different budgets. I think you know, even critics of the royal family, you know, people like Margaret Hodge, who sat on the um, Parliament's main or chair to Parliament's main parliamentary watchdog. She did welcome that change. It is it is more efficient. The real problem is that the overall amount of money doesn't seem to be directly linked to need. And what surprised a lot of people, I think, is that after a few years of it being pegged at 15%, it suddenly went up to 25%, which I think they said would be for 10 years, although I'm not quite sure how that relates to the the ratchet 
mechanism that we mentioned before. Um, so it's now up around uh, 80 million pounds a year so that we are then ending up spending money on fixing the uh, fixing Buckingham Palace. Is that, uh, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. About four years ago, there was a review of the amount and they decided to raise it from 15 to 25 percent. And that extra 10 percent was earmarked for the renovations, the Buckingham Palace refit. Now, actually, no one is really disputing that a lot of money has to be spent at, at Buckingham Palace, right? That, that's not the argument. The argument is, is how it was done. And this hike of an extra 10%, and the money comes from the taxpayer. It doesn't come from the Crown Estates. It was done without any public consultation. And it was done at a time when, you know, it was four years ago, that was in the, you know, in the period of austerity, when everyone was having belt tightening, when we were told we're all in this together. Suddenly, it's announced that, £369 million of taxpayers' money had to be allocated to do up Buckingham Palace. So it was the manner at which it was done and the fact that, um, you know, if they are going to spend that much money, then maybe they should have made doing up Buckingham Palace, maybe they should have made it much more open to the public. You know, at the moment it's open for about 10 weeks in the summer. They're going to extend it a little bit. But if you're going to spend so much of taxpayers' money doing it up, I think it would be totally legitimate to say, you know, we're going to turn it in some way into a public museum, extend the opening hours, give the public something back, something more back in return for £369 million. Yes, the work had to be done, but it's a lot of money and it wasn't done without proper public consultation. And there's an obvious, clear analogy at the moment with obviously the huge cost of doing up Buckingham, uh, the Palace of Westminster, Parliament. So where that has been much more public and there has been a lot of debate about it um, and where MPs have been involved in making that decision. Whereas with the with Buckingham Palace, it was made, as I understand it, by the Prime Minister and the Chancellor at the time. Um, and that was that decision was done, announced, and, and that was it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting parallel, isn't it, between the cost of Buckingham Palace and the cost of, of doing up Parliament. And the two things are linked. And, you know, I've spoke, spoken to MPs and there was a slight reluctance for them to, you know, to have a big hoo-ha over the cost of, of doing up Buckingham Palace at the same time that they were, you know, putting forward plans to spend a fortune doing, doing up Parliament. So they were in a difficult position. You know, if there was going to be a big... Um, backbench rebellion or you know some outcry of it from MPs then how could they in a year's time go forward and say well we, we need a lot of money to do up our own palace so they were in a, that might slightly explain why there was insufficient scrutiny of this major you know this this extra 369 million pounds but as you as you said I think the issue I mean even you know I was doing plenty of interviews on this when it was announced and I have no issue with us paying to do it at Buckingham Palace because it belongs to us. But the issue is, well, you know, can we then open it up more to tourists? Can we recover some of that money through ticket sales? And, uh, you know, and can we have greater accountability and transparency for how this is done and decided? And, and, and also there's a question as to why it was left to uh, get into such a, a, a poor state in the first place, which is also a question that uh, I think Parliament might want to uh, address as well <laughs> with their own building. But um, 
So yeah, it is about getting the right. The criticism has to be addressed. Uh, you know, it can't be that the royal family has to be expected to pay for that building. Um, but um, but it, there are other questions around the, the, the transparency, the accountability, and and the way in which it was decided. Yeah, I think that's a good question. You know, I think I'd argue that maybe Buckingham Palace really should have been. Do we really need two public state palaces, both Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace? Maybe some of the ceremonial things that go on in in Buckingham Palace could be transferred to Windsor Castle, and maybe Buckingham Palace could be turned into a much more of a public palace and open to the public, if not all year round, certainly for a longer period. And it would be enormous money spinner. You know, people forget that since it's been open since what was 1993, 10 million people have passed, have gone, you know, paying visitors have gone through it. Last year, I think total revenues was about £16 million just for Buckingham Palace when you include all the souvenirs. So it's quite a money spinner, and it could become an even greater money spinner if it was opened up to the public. It is, you know, effectively it is a state, a state palace, and, you know, the public do have some ownership of it. And just... Finally, really, I mean, we, we've published our own royal, royal finance report. And I mean, the figure that we put on the, the annual cost, um, which we think is probably a conservative estimate, is £345 million because we are factoring in estimates on security. Uh, there are costs met by local councils and local police forces as the royals go around on their, their tours and uh, doing their engagements. And we also factor in the lost revenue from the duchies of Lancaster and Cornwall, because we consider those to be, uh, you know, have the same status really as the crown estate, which they, you know, that money should have been going to the treasury. And there's a few other bits and pieces in there, lost tax and whatever. I mean, have you, I don't know to what extent you agree with our assessment, or have you done an assessment yourself of how much it is costing us each year beyond what they sort of uh, report in their uh, annual accounts? Well, I haven't done a detailed assessment of that, but I, you know, I certainly think it's more than these, the total, the real cost of the royal of the royal family is much more than they say it is. You know, the official figure is something like eighty-two million pounds a year, and the way they present that to the public that it is, I don't know, one pound, ten pounds per every citizen in Britain. They used to use the thing of oh, it's just the cost of one. Uh, the cost of a stamp mm. that was the one they did it, which really was very naughty. And they knew the costs are much greater than that. And, you know, the biggest other cost is, as you mentioned, security. Now, no one knows the exact cost of that because they refuse, you know, to disclose it. But I think it is reasonable to assume that that must be of the order of at least £100 million a year. That more than doubles the £82 million figure. As you say, there are other extras in the cost of the royal family, even just things like the, the Queen's lieutenants in different counties, those cost, you know, almost a million pounds a year. Um, whether or not you fully include the duchies is a, is a moot point. Clearly, the duchies are not totally private property, and they're more public than private, but whether, you know, it, it's arguable exactly the status of the duchies. But, you know, I think in, in my own analysis, I think it, it the, the real cost of the of, of the monarchy to the taxpayer is is you know is of the order of two hundred fifty million pounds, three hundred million pounds. I, I think your figures are roughly in the right ballpark area. And 
just looking ahead, you mentioned uh, towards the end of your book about what what happens next, and you're sort of, I guess, speculating as to whether King Charles will be someone who wants to hold on to these privileges, or whether he is willing to modernize, um, if that's the right word, and to trim it down, or maybe whether he'd even go as far as paying taxes. I mean, it, what's your uh, best guess as to what how things might change when Charles becomes king? Well, I, I think the real problem is, is sort of age and having to wait so long. I think if maybe if Charles had become king 10 years ago, he's, what is he, uh, 71 now, you know, if he'd come in as 60, I think he did want to change things. And there certainly was, you know, four or five years ago, serious talk of having a slimmed down monarchy of just having around, you know, six or seven working royals. And I, th- I think, you know, you might have had changes going on. And there was, you know, there was even talk about Charles not living in Buckingham Palace, but living in Clarence House. And that would have freed up Buckingham Palace to be used as a museum and whatever. So that might have happened. I, I think it's, it's unlikely that, you know, Charles probably won't be king for another five years or so. So that will be in his mid-70s. Is he really going to totally change the monarchy having waited so long to get the top job my gut my gut feeling is no i think he'll want to change a few things i think he'll probably want to have maybe fewer working royals but to if one is expecting a a major change from charles I, i think that's unlikely i think more than likely you'll probably have to wait another generation to william to to see whether you know things are pruned and and whether we have, you know, a, a, a leaner, slimmed-down monarchy. Look, we've run out of time, and thank you very much for uh, joining us for this podcast. It's been a really, really interesting chat. And there is, I mean, we could easily talk about this for <laughs> hours because there's so much material there. But, um, uh, yeah, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on and uh, talking through some of these uh, fascinating details of the royal funding. Thank you, Graham. It was fun. So thank you for joining us for this episode of the Abolish the Monarchy podcast. You can find David's book, Royal Legacy, on all good online bookshops and watch out for the publication of his next book, Royal Privilege, later this year. And you can find out more about Republic at republic.org.uk, including ways you can support the campaign, whether by joining, donating or getting involved.